0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is where we are, and it's going to really serve you to have a Bible out on your lap as you're uh, looking um, at this passage with me. And so, okay, now, if you've stumbled in on us today, you have stumbled in on part seven of a set of sermons called Gospel, Greed and Generosity, where we are surveying some of what the Bible says about money and possessions. Okay, now, I I want you to see that that we're seven weeks into this before we have tackled a passage like Second Corinthians eight and nine that deals specifically with generosity and giving. So we have spent six weeks, I, I would kind of consider it kind of plowing the ground, kind of laying the framework so that when we see this passage in Second Corinthians 8 and 9 that deals with giving and generosity, that we can actually hear it rightly. So six weeks leading up to that. Now, I've been uh, in, in ministry for like 10, 11 years now, plenty long enough to know that talk about giving and generosity oftentimes does not go well and so uh so, I think it would kind of beg the question of in in light of that in light of a lot of people getting mad at, at this whole thing that we're doing today, this talk that we're kind of working through in this text that we're working through, uh, in light of it making some of us uncomfortable as we start pressing on giving and generosity, in light of all of that, I think it begs the question, why would we ever even preach it? Like, why would we ever do that? Now, there's a lot of ways that I think I could respond to that, but, but I want to just give you one reason that starts with the pastor. who's um, was in our network of church planters, Acts 29. Um, and he was planting and pastoring in a hostile part of the world, a part of the world that was hostile to the cause of Jesus. And so I, I want you to uh, listen. And by the way, I think his uh, picture is going to be up here on the screen. Uh, his name is Rashid. Um, he's on the left. His brother is on the right. So on the left of this picture, that's Rashid. I want you to, yeah, that's, that's him. So planting in a, a part of the world that's hostile to the gospel. Now I want you to, to listen to the blasphemy law that he is in like under, So the government, like this is a law that that he is underneath as a church planter in his part of the world. Blasphemy law, this is from their code, read like this. Whoever by words, either spoken or written, or by visible representation, or by any imputation, innuendo, or insinuation, directly or indirectly, defiles the sacred name of the holy prophet Muhammad, shall be punished with death, or imprisonment for life, and shall also be liable to fine. That's his context. That's where he's pastoring. That's where he's planting churches. That's where he's doing the work that God has called him to do. In July of 20, uh, 2010, he was um, accused of blasphemy. Uh, they imprisoned him and his brother. Um, after a prolonged stay in jail, they decided to let him out. And when he and, brother, and his brother are leaving the court, uh, leaving the jail, um, on their way home, a mob pulls up and um, guns down both he and his brother in the streets. Okay, now before we move on from that, you need to to feel that. That's got sights, that's got sounds, that's got smells associated with it. Okay, so don't just move on from that. That's a man, two brothers, gunned down in a street doing gospel work, right? Okay, now I want to ask this question. There's a lot of negatives that we could talk about in all that, but, but what sort of positives come to a Christian community when you're doing life in that context. Because I think there are are actually some positives. Um, Maybe you could think about it this way. That if you're in that context, do do you think you might think twice before you put a a fish on your car? Do do you think you'd think twice before you wear a Jesus t-shirt? Before you carry your Bible in the street? But before you tell a person that the only way to God is through Jesus before you get about doing church ministry and church planting and expansion of the gospel of Jesus, do you think you'd think twice about it? I I think we all would, wouldn't we? See, here's the unique gift that that living in a context like this gives a Christian community. This is a gift that persecution gives. It has a unique way of drawing the line between people who are fakes and fans of Jesus and people who are actually followers of Jesus. Now, do you see that? See, if if you're in that, let's just say you're in Somalia and you're worshiping Jesus next to a person at a church, at a house underground. I don't think any of us are looking around wondering if this guy's a fake or a joke. I don't think we're wondering if this guy's a fan of Jesus. Just kind of likes to admire Jesus from a distance. I mean, he's worshiping there at the expense, possibly, of his life, knowing that the mob could show up for him tomorrow. See, it's got a unique ability to cut through all the weirdness that, that is our, you know, culturally what happens. It's got a unique ability to press the line between what it is to be fake and what it is to be a follower, what it is to be a fan, what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, now I want you to think about our culture now. Because we've got this this problem in our culture. that that One of the problems is there's there's nothing that pushes us to a decision point. There is very little. The the line between fan and follower is almost non-existent in our culture. There's nothing to push us to that point. You're not afraid that you're going to die tomorrow because you're a Christian. You're not afraid that somebody's going to gun you down because you're a Christian tomorrow. See, the line between that, there's nothing that presses us to the point of of, of having like this division of those who admire Jesus and those who have been radically changed and saved by Jesus, have a heart for Jesus, love Jesus, their life hinges on Jesus. There is very little to distinguish that in the crowd. And so, he, now hear this. One of the reasons it is absolutely necessary for us to talk about money and possessions, and even like this morning, to talk about giving and generosity, is because in our culture, this wouldn't necessarily be completely true in Somalia or in other parts of the world, but in our culture, giving and generosity is one of the most reliable guides. I'm going to say this, the most reliable guide to help you see if you are fake or if you're a follower. I'm going to say this one more time. In our culture, How we do this money and possessions thing, specifically giving and generosity, is one of the most reliable guides, if not the most reliable guide, to help you see if you're just kind of a fan that kind of likes Jesus, or if you're actually following Jesus. Like, I love Jesus. I am in. My life hinges on this thing. This is one of the best tests that you can have. So see, if I get to a posture of saying, I'm not going to preach this because I know it's going to make some people mad. I know it's going to make some people antsy and uncomfortable. I am forsaking one of the greatest guides we have in our culture of helping you see if you're for real. That's what's at stake here. So see, if I pull back from this, I'm actually doing you a great disservice. Talking about money and possessions is a discipleship issue. It helps cut to the core of everything else, cut through everything else to the core of who you are and what you think about God. Generosity and giving in our culture is the most reliable guide to help you see if you're a fan or a follower. So in light of that, we have to go here. Like We are going here. We're going to talk about these sort of things because I I really do care about your heart and where you are with God. And I really want God to be at the center of everything you're about and everything you're doing. So, So here's my hope for this morning. My hope is that for some of us, um, this text would would be very exposing for us. That as we read through this text and think about this text, that some of us are going to wake up today and realize, wow, I am a long way from where the Bible would want me as it relates to giving. I'm a long way from that. Really long way. So the Spirit of God is going to need to come in in a unique way today and bring a lot of us to repentance, bring good godly conviction And lead us to repentance, knowing as we run to Jesus that he has covered every sin, especially our lack of generosity. For others, I hope this is going to be true for you today. That for some in the room, that that there is going to be something well up in you um, that, that you're encouraged today as you read this. So it's not going to necessarily be exposing for a few in the room. It's going to be encouraging as we look at this text and as we see the scriptures. You're also going to see that, wow, I'm seeing this in my life. And so my, my hope is for all of us to be moving in that direction, that more and more we would be seeing what we're about to read in your life, in my life, and in the life of our church. Okay, so with that said, now we're at 2 Corinthians 8. So um, context, let me just walk you through the context and then we're going to start reading here. Um, The context really comes out of first Corinthians. If you look at first Corinthians 16, the first couple of verses, you're going to see that Paul tells the Corinthian church that we've got some problems in Jerusalem. And so we've got some Christians who need help there. They're suffering. In extreme poverty, so we're going to do some help for them. So I'm going to come eventually to Corinth, and I'm going to take up a collection, an offering, so we can take money from you, and we can give it to people in Jerusalem. So I'm coming to take up this collection. So he tells them in in 1 Corinthians 16 to start setting aside money, because this is coming. And then you get to 2 Corinthians 8, and and now he's on his third missionary journey. He's in Macedonia, probably riding from Philippi, on his way to, to Corinth. And before he gets there, he sends this letter along. And one of the things he's wanting to remind them of is the collection that's coming. And so 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is an attempt by Paul to stir up the Corinthian church to generosity. That is what he is trying to do in these two chapters. It forms the longest kind of concise um, teaching on giving and generosity in the Bible. Two chapters all about trying to stir up the Corinthian church to giving. Now, my hope is it would have the same effect on you and I, that it would stir all of us up to generosity. Okay, so with that said, here we go. And by the way, I, I wanted to cover all of this in one week. It's going to take us two weeks to get through. There's 10 things I want to talk about in this passage. We're going to do five this week, five next week. So here we go. Second Corinthians eight, verse one says this. We want you to know brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction. You might make sure that word is underlined, highlighted, starred severe test of affliction. These people in Macedonia are in deep trouble, severe suffering. Okay, so it is not all as well in Macedonia. It is severe suffering in Macedonia. He goes on. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. You might underline extreme poverty. It is not all well in Macedonia. Severe suffering, affliction, and extreme poverty. These people are hurting They're in deep trouble. Some commentators would relate their economic situation to third world poverty. Okay, so they are in extreme, extreme, extraordinary sort of poverty. So he goes on here, for a severe test of affliction, or in that, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, all of that has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Okay, so I want you to think about what Paul is doing here. He is using the Macedonian church, these churches around this area. He's using these churches as a model for giving. So, So there's a sense in which he's using friendly competition here. He's saying, Do you see how these churches are giving? Severe affliction and suffering, extreme poverty. And even in that, do you see how they're giving? So he's using the Macedonian churches as a way to stir up generosity in Corinth, a much relatively speaking, a a well-off rich church. It would be uh, similar to God looking at Stonegate and saying, hey, do you see that inner city church in Dallas? Every one of them are in poverty. Do do you see those churches there? Do you see how they're giving? Now, Now, what do you think that would do in a suburban context like we're in? See, that's what he's doing here. He's taking a church that is is destitute and he's using them as a model for what generous giving looks like. He's using them as a model to stir up generosity in the church in Corinth. Okay, so in light of that, he's going to give us 10 things. Here's the first five. Number one, verse three. First three words, huge first three words. Underline star, whatever you have to do to mark up, you want to remember these first three words. For they gave, do you see those? For they gave. Here is the first thing we need to know about Christian giving. Is that Christians actually give. Sounds simple. I think it's going to be profound under the surface there for us, right? That Christians actually give. That generosity should be a reflexive response for a person who has been met by the grace of God. The Christians give. This is a normal thing. That generosity is... is normal life in the part of, uh, in the life of a Christian. Maybe you can think about it this way. Those first three words, for they gave, should be the summary statement of every Christian's life. For they gave, should be a summary of, of what defines them, who they are. For they gave, that should be a summary statement for us. A statement that could describe how we deal with money and possessions, the, the, just the flavor of our life, for they gave. See, when, when our heart is, is caught up with Jesus, like we actually love him, we've actually been met by the grace of God in the form of Jesus, when that has happened, we start to care about the things of Jesus. Money starts to flow out of us and into the causes and concerns of Jesus, into the plans and purposes of Jesus generosity is a reflexive response for every christian for they gave that's a summary statement now um, here's the tension with with this issue is in the american church this is not happening this is the tension let's just survey the american church and ask the question is that there is this a summary statement and i think the answer is an overwhelming no it is not there Okay, so I, I want to give you just a little bit of work that's been done on this. A guy named Christian Smith is a sociologist. He's also a Christian, and he has done some of the most thorough research on giving in among Christians in America. He wrote a book on it called Passing the Plate. And so in that, I, I want to give you three things that he found in, in his research on this. Number one, he found this, that one out of four self-identified Christians, one out of four, self-identified Christians, give nothing. So we just divide the church into four sections. One fourth of those, one of those sections, would be the group that just gives absolutely nothing. Okay, then, okay now, and, and by the way, we're talking not a penny, we're talking about nothing, not a cent, nothing. Okay, now, next one. So one out of four, self-identified Christians give nothing. Secondly, that the vast majority of Christians... Give next to nothing. So wherever nothing is, they're like one quarter of a step above that, just next to it. There's just a little smidgen in between them and nothing. That's the vast majority of Christians. Okay, so here's what his research found. That here is the median, so median range of, of or kind of the midway point of, of giving in America. So you take all the self-identified Christians, here's the middle point. Okay, this is the median. The median range of giving is 0.62%. So all the self-identified Christians, the middle of those, you take the middle number of giving, the middle is 0.62%. That means that for every $100 we get, that the median, midway point, is we give 62 cents. Okay, that's next to nothing. Okay, now he, he says, let's take the average. The average of self-identified Christians in America, they give six or 2.6%. that's the average. Now that's weighted with people who give way more than that, who way offset the scale. Average, 2.6%. Now here was an interesting thing you said though, that when you're doing like research like this, it's almost impossible to get an accurate number because everyone overestimates what they give. Everyone does. So you need to assume that if somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, percentage one, what do you give? That chances are whatever number you throw out is an overestimation. I just think about this. Think about every cent that you earn in a month. Every cent. Your insurance, perks from the company, you get a company car, you get a company phone, you get a company anything. Every perk you get, everything you get, that is what God has entrusted to you. Okay, that, that, that's the deal. That's the, that's the pot. Now take what you give and divide it by that pot of everything that comes into you. And I think what you would find is you probably overestimate too. That I probably overestimate. That unless you do the hard math on that and consider every perk and every little thing that you get in a month, you probably overestimate. I overestimate. So it's almost impossible to get a right number. So chances are, whatever this little number is, you know, 2.6% or roughly that 2.5%, it's probably higher than, than it actually is. Okay, now here's the third thing you said. So number one, one one-fourth, self-identified Christians give nothing. A vast majority give next to nothing. And here was an interesting finding too. When you compare giving and earning, that that we would, I think most of us would think this, that the more you earn, probably the more percentage-wise you would give. But actually the reverse is true. The more you earn, the less percentage people give. So I think we all probably buy into the... If I just won the lottery, you wouldn't believe how generous I would be. I mean, I'd be given to everything. You just show me, so I'd be in for it. And can I just say not to burst your bubble, but you wouldn't. If you're not giving it now, you wouldn't give it then. I mean, isn't this interesting? Uh, he went on to say this, that if you look dollar for dollar of people in the Great Depression, in the Great Depression, they gave more percentage-wise than people now, Christians now. Th- that percentage giving in the U.S. over the last 30 years has consistently been on the decline. Okay, are, are you seeing this? I think we've got a problem here. That, that if we're just going to survey, if we're going to ask the question, if giving and generosity is, a gr- is the most reliable test in our culture to determine the, the, the difference between a fan and a follower of Jesus, I don't, think that, I don't, think the te- I don't know if we're passing that test. I think we've got a lot more fans than, than followers. I mean, I think that this should, in some way, scare us all. Okay, now, this was, I think this might have been, for me, the most interesting thing, that just watching, when he asked the question, what is the obstacle to this? Like, why aren't people giving more? He, he did this extensive survey and asked people the question, why is it that you don't give more? And I think this is a really interesting thing that people responded with. The the biggest response he got to that question, why don't you give more, is this. I can't. In other words, my fixed costs don't allow me to give. Bills every month overwhelm earnings every month. Okay, so, and, and by the way, I think in a suburban context, this is the predominant thing people think when they answer that question. I think if you surveyed the room, that would be the representative response of the majority of people in the room. If you were to ask them, why don't you give more? The answer, I can't. Okay. So I wanted to speak into this just for a second this morning with, with a couple of things. First, let, let me, let me say this, that response, it doesn't hold up. Like if you're a Christian and that's your thinking, we've got a problem. Okay, so, so this is what happens, I think, in a suburban context. And this is all of us to some degree. See, if, if, if we were to get a raise in our job, here's what instantly happens. Our lifestyle swells to absorb that raise. So you get a $1,000 a month raise, your lifestyle just bumps up, and it absorbs a $1,000 a month raise. Now, now, listen to me on this. Here's the problem. God does not hold you accountable for what you don't have. But he does hold you accountable for what you do have. Okay, let me try to walk through the implication of that. If your earnings in a month are right here, this is what God's holding you accountable for. Not here, not there, not way up there. He's holding you accountable for what he's given you. So so listen to this. If your life, this is what you earn in a month, and your life is right there with it, your capacity to, to be generous has been choked out by the choices of your lifestyle. It's been choked out by your house been choked out by the cars you drive, and choked out by the choices you make. See, here's the point. Whatever your earning is, every Christian has to make hard decisions. Like the non-negotiable is I give. I am generous. That's the non-negotiable. Everything else is negotiable. Everything else. Where we live. What, everything else is negotiable. What's not negotiable is giving. So, so here's the thing. Just follow me. If this is your earnings in a month, We all have to make the hard decisions in life to keep our lifestyle below it so that we will be freed to give generously. That requires hard decisions from everyone in the room. If this is what God has given you, this is what God holds you accountable to. So part of living faithfully to God with this is keeping your life down here so that you can actually give generously. In other words, saying that this is what God's given me, my lifestyle is here so I can't give. That doesn't work. That's reflective of a huge problem underneath. God's not, maybe I could say it this way. God's not satisfied with that excuse. That that doesn't hold water in God's economy. Okay, so so here's the first thing. Christians give. Christians give. Okay, here's number two. See it in the first three words, by the way. For they give. That's a summary statement of the life of a Christian. For they give. Secondly, Christians give sacrificially. Now, now keep working with me in verse three here. It says this, Paul says, for they, talking about the Macedonian church, poverty, all that, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and then he clarifies. He's going to put a little caveat in there. Like a, well, let me, let me reconsider what I just said. It actually wasn't according to their means. It was beyond their means. So not just according, but Beyond. Now, um, this is where the, uh, the air hits turbulence. So buckle your seatbelts. This is where it gets really rough. Th- this walks us into what I think is the biggest myth in the American church as it relates to giving. The, like the biggest myth, here you go. If I were to ask you a question that goes like this, what do you think God wants from you as far as your giving? What 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 does God want? I think this is the dominant response of the American church. And the American church doesn't do it, but I think this is the dominant response in what we think. Is God wants 10%. So, so give God a tithe and you're good. It's, I mean, just as la- like I'm screaming this on the inside, can I just say this? That is, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not correct. That's not what the Bible's after. That's not what God is after. That's not the right response to the question, what would God want from your giving? See, here's what that leads to. Most American Christians think this, that if I just give like this, or so we'll just call it 10%, then the rest is mine. So the, the 90% is mine. So I give this, and then God, leave me alone. The, the 90% is mine. Okay, can, can we just go back here and remember? Matthew 25, parable of the stewards. God is the owner of everything, amen? We are stewards of everything, amen? There is no 10, 90 like, difference in this thing. It is God owns everything and we have to figure out what it looks like to live sacrificially in light of that. That it's all his. That every penny you own, every perk you have is given to you by God. Every penny, not 10% of the pennies, 100% of the pennies. Okay, so now to to kind of give a little bit of of the the substance around this and framing this, I I think it's important that we go back and just look at what the tithe is biblically and kind of move into the New Testament from that. So if you go to the Old Testament, you're going to see the word tithe mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. Now let me give you the background there just so you'll have this in your mind. In the Old Testament, there were three primary ways that people were supposed to give to. Number one, they gave 10% per year to the Levites or the priests and the temple to keep that whole thing going to keep um, the, 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 just the system that they had set up there, church world, I think you could think of it like that in the Old Testament, to keep that going. So 10% went that way. They also gave 10% to provide for the festivals every year. So now we're up to 20%. Every person was expected to do this. Now we got to the 20%. Then every third year, they would give 10% of their income to the poor and needy, to help the poor and needy. So if you do the math in the Old Testament, here was required giving. 23.33 whatever percent. Okay, that would have been normal giving for Old Testament believers. 23.33%. Now carry that over into the New Testament and here's what we find. That, that nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus command the tithe. Although in a few places he commends it. So it doesn't command it, but in a few places he commends the tithe. Like Matthew 23 is one of those places. But when the New Testament talks about the standard of giving... It is not talking about a percentage for you. It is talking about sacrifice. Maybe I could say it this way. The New Testament standard of giving equals sacrificial. That's the standard. It's not 1%, 2%, 10%, 20%. It's sacrificial. That's the standard. Okay, now This is what we see in this passage. He says it's not a... This is a church, severe suffering, extreme poverty. They didn't give according to their means. In other words, if I have a dollar left over at the end of the month, you know, fixed costs are kind of here, then I'll I'll give this if it works out. It wasn't according to their means. It was beyond their means. Do you see that in verse three? Beyond it. That means this. I am going to cut deeply into my life, the daily rhythm of my life, I'm going to cut deeply into that so that I can give generously. That's sacrificial giving. It's not according to your means. It's beyond it. Okay, so maybe you could think about three levels of giving. Level number one is below your means. And I, I think this would describe probably 95% of American Christians giving below their means. Not even according to it, but below it. Okay, then um, the second category is I think you could think about according to your means. In other words, if you have a little bit left over, then we'll give it. If not, we won't, but if we have it, we'll, we'll do it. So it's according to our means. And then I, this is the uncharted water, right? This is like that vast territory that no one seems to, to be floating around on. It's this idea of sacrificial. It's this idea of, of actually giving beyond your means. It's actually giving to the point where the math doesn't make sense. It's giving to the point where it requires risk for you. It's giving to the point that it actually requires faith for you. It actually requires dependence upon God for you to do it. It's giving to the point that it cuts into your life, that your life in some ways is bleeding because you are giving. That's sacrificial. See what most of us, when we get to the giving thing, most of us respond just like the survey. I can't do it. I can't afford to give. Let me translate what that means translated I can't afford to give translated that means I can't give without it costing me something ironically that's exactly where God would want you to actually be giving in such a way that it costs you something that it hurts that you're bleeding because you're doing it that that's what God would have for you that's what sacrificial giving is so so let me just be clear on this Jesus is not after equal giving. He is after equal sacrifice. This is like Luke 21 sacrificial giving. Do you remember the story in Luke 21? You might want to mark that at some point, go back and read that. Jesus is watching people give in the temple, and he's watching people drop bombs in the offering plate. I mean, bombs. And he's not impressed. He's not impressed. But then you have this little widow come up that owns two coins. That's it. She's got no safety net. She didn't know where she's getting food tomorrow. She's got two coins and she drops her two coins in the offering offering basket. Two coins, it's in. Jesus stops, takes a step back and commends that. That is what pleases God. This sort of sacrificial giving. This is what Jesus is after. So so hear me again. It's not equal giving. They were dropping bombs in the plate and he wasn't impressed. It was equal sacrifice. Do you know why he was impressed with the sacrifice of of the widow, by the giving of the widow? Because her giving left nothing for herself. That's why. See, God is not impressed when we give, but yet we have mega back here behind us. That requires much less faith. He's he's impressed by our giving when it cuts so deeply into our life that we actually have to depend on God for tomorrow. That's what he's impressed at in Luke 21. That's what he's pleased at. So the standard is not equal giving. The standard is equal sacrifice. And see, this is where the church can get it all wrong. Because we commend and we get awed by people who drop a lot in when God is awed by people who drop, like in proportion, they drop so much in that they have little left. See, that's what pleases God. He's after sacrificial giving. So so let me just illustrate this for clarity purposes. Uh, Consider two families. Family number one makes their family of five. They make 40 grand a year. And they decide this year that they're going to do the tithe thing. They're going to give 10%. So this year they give give $4,000, a tenth of their income for this year. Okay. Now imagine family number two, they don't make 40 grand. They're a family of five. He makes, they make 400 K a year and, and they decide this year I'm going to give a tithe. So, so they give $40,000 this year. Now, okay. The question is, what is the sacrifice equal there? How would we look at that sacrificially? And can you see how the, the, the $4,000 of family one is much more sacrificial than the $40,000 of family two? Can you see that? that in, sacri- like in, in the nature of sacrificial giving, they're not on the same planet yet. See, And the reason they're not on the same planet is because one family is left with $36,000 to live on and the other family is left with $360,000 to live on. See, sacrifice means that it cuts into all of that stuff. It means that we're risking. See, there's no risk giving forty thousand dollars when you have three hundred sixty thousand left. There is no risk in that, but it's it's fairly risky if you're making forty grand and you give four. See, this is what God is pressing on for everyone in the room. It's not equal giving across this room. It's equal sacrifice that God would get us to the point of being sacrificial in the way we're thinking about generosity. So in light of that, let me just ask you the question. Your giving, your generosity, is it sacrificial? Like I'm talking cuts into your life sacrificial. I'm talking above and beyond your means sacrificial. I'm talking it's it's the widow's Luke 21, two copper coins sacrificial. Would it be reflective of that? I think probably the, the biggest and the most often asked question that I've gotten as it relates to giving is the idea of how much. OK, so I get sacrificial. So how much do I give? What, what is that? And so let me just give a quick response to that. that, that I, you know, I, I think for a lot of people in the room, it would be probably good to start at a tithe. But, but I just want to reaffirm a tithe is not some sacred thing in the Bible. That's not what God is after. If, if you start with the tithe, here's how you need to view it. That these are training wills on the bicycle of sacrifice. So all the all tithe is, is just get me on the bike so I don't crash and burn and fall into a ditch. But it's not what God's after. God is pressing, with this text in 2 Corinthians, he is pressing on sacrifice. That's what God is after. For some of us in the room, that may mean 10%. For others in the room, that may mean 20. For others, that's going to mean 30. For others, that's going to mean 40. For others, that's going to mean 50. For some in the room, that's going to be, God's going to blow you up, and that's going to mean 90%. See, sacrifice is what God's after, though. He's not, he's not after, he's not after equal giving in this room. I'll say this again. He's after equal sacrifice. He wants you to give until you bleed, Like until you actually have to trust Him. Until it actually requires faith in Him. Okay, so uh, let me read this quote by C.S. Lewis as he tries to answer this question of, okay, so how much is enough? So, So how much is that? Here's how he answers it. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words... If our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, and amusements, etc., listen to this, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are way too small. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charities or our giving, our, our charities expenditure excludes them. Do you see what God's getting at here in sacrificial giving above your means giving? That it would actually preclude you doing some things in life that you would really like to do. That you'd really enjoy doing, that you'd really want to do. It would preclude that because you're giving sacrificially. So so I I just want to keep this in front of you again. Would the way you give be described like that? And if not, I want you to hear, this is where God wants all of us to go. You to go, me to go, our church family to go, all of us to go. Sacrificial. Okay, number three. Number two is sacrificial. Number three is they gave passionately. They gave passionately. Um, the start of verse four, I think, is the most incredible couple of words. I mean, these, for me, some of the most amazing words in the Bible. I, okay, read these with me here. We're starting in verse three. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. You might underline of their own accord. And, and look at the first word in, in verse four. Unbelievable, this first word begging, highlight star, whatever you have to do to make it stick out, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, begging us. Okay, um, there are some bad things about being the friends of a pastor. One of those things is you're probably going to make a sermon at some point. And so uh, I got a good friend goes to Stonegate. By the way, I asked for permission. He's good with it. Goes to Stonegate. And back in April, we we were just starting to talk to friends and people and all that about the fact that we were about to do um, three months of extraordinary generosity this summer. That we were going to do a, a set of sermons that was going to survey some of what the Bible had to say about money and possessions. That, that we're about to go there. And uh, as we started this series, he came up to me and he said. Uh, this was after the first morning we did, this was part one of Gospel, Greed, and Generosity. He says, man, I feel like I need to confess this. Um, when, when you first said, this is where we're going this summer, it really tweaked me. Like I had this, this was his words, I had this little thing well up in me of, great, here, here we go again, what do they want from me now? And now, now test your own heart here. Don't you see that in you? I see it in me. I totally see that in me. I mean, when we started this series, this was my first gut reaction. I better buy whatever I want now before we start this thing, right? <laughs> this is the time to buy. The green light is on. Okay, so do you see that in you? Because I, I see that little reflex in me. That, that little reaction in me. When we start talking about sacrifice and generous giving and when we have these conversations. And I think this is a healthy corrective for everyone in the room to contrast your heart when we have conversations like this. Like, I don't know what you just thought when we were talking about sacrificial giving, but I can imagine a lot of us thinking this. I hate every word that I'm hearing right now. And I think we need to contrast our heart when we hear these things and the Macedonians. Look at this in verse four. Do you see this? Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. See, their posture is not... Great, what do you want from me now? Their posture is, God, will you please let me be a part of this thing? Like, I don't want to miss this. And we're talking extreme poverty, severe suffering. They don't have stuff. They're not 21st century American Christians. And, and they, they've got this overwhelming sense of, God, we want to bleed for the cause of Christ. Like, we want we to sacrifice to see this thing happen. Don't don't pass over us. We're begging you to let us be a part of this. Now ask yourself, is that your heart when it comes to these things? Is that how you feel about these things? I I mean, I think we all need a real course correction in this. And if you're cynical, if if there's something in you that's antsy and uncomfortable, if there's something in you that's a little bit mad right now. I think you need to ask your ask yourself. Or maybe pray to God that he would give you this sort of a heart, this sort of begging God, I'm earnestly asking you to get me involved in this thing. I need that. You need that as a church family. We need the grace of God to do that in us. Amen. So they gave passionately. Number four, they gave deliberately. Look at look at verse three again here. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part, and then here you go, here's the deliberate part, taking part in what? In the relief of the saints. In other words, they knew where their money was going. In in other words, they were giving specifically with an end in mind. Like, they they weren't just randomly giving to everything, they were giving to specific things they wanted their money to make a difference in. In this context, it was the relief of the, the Christians in Jerusalem. Okay, so I want to just take a step back and kind of give you the big picture of what Paul's doing here and how it relates to Stonegate. I think there's a sense in which Paul in this passage is doing this. He's putting a compelling vision in front of people, and then he's asking them, pleading with them, trying to stir them up to give generously toward it. Okay, this is what's happening in this text. Using the Macedonian church to stir stir the Corinthian church up to generosity. Now, I think every pastor shares in the same sort of Paul-like role that one of the jobs of a, of the of a group of pastors that lead a church is to keep compelling vision in front of people and then to call them to give sacrificially above their means to get there. That is one of the roles that I have for this church and our pastors have for this church is to, to cast compelling vision and to call us all toward that vision, to give sacrificially toward it. So I want to take a step back and just connect a few of these dots as it relates to Stonegate. And so I, I want to frame what I'm about to say um, with, with these opening words. I refuse to allow us to be a church that is selfish. Now, you know the gravitational pull for all of our hearts goes that way, right? By the grace of God, I'm praying that, that I would always have this mindset. I refuse to allow us to go there. I'm not in for that. I'm not in for a selfish place. So, so that means we've got to lift our eyes above the horizon of just Stonegate. So there's two sets of questions that we ask when it relates to to what we're trying to do around here. One set of questions deals with things in the context of Stonegate, ministry and mission here, what God is doing here. And those questions are reflective of a heart that loves and cares for our church. But there's another set of questions that we ask that deal with things beyond Stonegate. And that's reflective of a heart that, that is saying this, we also care about what God is doing beyond our four walls. Like we also, are we all aware that God is actually doing things beyond Stonegate? We are, right? That God's got this global purpose in mind. That God's got a lot of stuff he's wanting to do. And not all of that means Stonegate, but some of it does. And so we've got another quest, set of questions that we're asking about God's heart for the world and how we want to be involved in that. And he would call us to be involved in that. So, so in light of that, I, I want to tell you about the things outside of our walls and how they relate to the things inside of our walls. So let me just give you two of the things outside of our walls. We want to plant a lot of churches. We are asking God over the next 10 or 15 years to allow us to be a part of planting 50 churches. That is a big God-size going to require God to do extraordinary things to accomplish goal. So so we're praying for that. And there's a lot of reasons why on that, because it is the way God has ordained for the gospel to spread. That's first. But behind that, can, can I tell you why that's so important to us? Because if all we do is focus on Stonegate, do you know how we'll grow the kingdom of God? By addition. By addition. So even if God blows up our place, we're going to grow by addition. We're going to add people to Stonegate. But do you know what happens when you start doing church planting? You get in that world of things. You know what happens? You grow by multiplication. It's no longer addition, it's multiplication. I, love, or I like addition. I love multiplication. Especially as it relates to kingdom expansion. Amen. So see, now think about this. Even if God blows this place up and we're several thousand in a few years, if God does, I don't know what God's gonna do, but if he does, okay, so we're a couple of thousand. Now now think in terms of what if we planted 50 other churches like Stonegate, what happens? We're not a church like right now of five or 600. You know what we would be at that point? We would be a combined group of churches multiplying the gospel of not five or 600, but of 25 or 30,000. Now, do you see the, the difference in that? One is addition, one is multiplication. We want to multiply kingdom expansion. We want to multiply the gospel's reach. But can I just tell you what that's going to require? Money. Do you know that? It's going to require money. It's going to require you and me and us as a church to be extremely sacrificial if we're going to get there. Another thing we want to do is see a lot of people adopt around our place. We want to help solve some of the foster care issues in our area. Um, We're praying for God to give us 100 adoptions over the next 10 years in our church family. Now think, not addition, but think multiplication for a second. Think if we had 50 churches all with a heart for adoption, what happens? We're not adopting 100 kids. We're adopting 5,000 kids over the upcoming years. Do you see that? See, can I tell you what that's going to require though? Sacrifice on every one of our parts to make happen on every one of our parts, It's going to require you, me, all of us to be really sacrificial if we're going to get there. Okay, now I want to tie in one thing that relates specifically to Stonegate that that, the dots connect here for you. For our church, there is no place we can rent long-term that is going to be a long-term option for us. In other words, every place we could rent has a back end where they're going to kick us out of it. So unless we think the best way to reach our area is to stop meeting on Sunday mornings, to do a bunch of house churches around our area, unless we think that's our best way, then we're going to, and I don't personally, then we're going to have to figure out a way to solve the facility and space issue. It's a long-term solution. And we're not trying to be gaudy in that. We're trying to be really functional, uh, as functional as possible. Okay, so I want you to see the connection here, though. Us being able to move into a facility with low debt or no debt is a huge key in us being able to accomplish everything else that God's called us to. This plays a huge part in this. So, so think about this. Many churches have a $20, 30 40 50 75000 100000 200000 a month debt load that they're servicing to, to get into a facility. Now think about, rather than paying interest to a bank and, and a huge debt load every month, what if we had mega money on a monthly basis that we are generously and radically giving for the cause of church planting, adoption and orphan care, and the multiplication of the gospel? Do you see what we're going after there? That these dots connect. And see, I think we would all say we would like to move into a building debt-free, low debt, no debt. Do you know what that's going to require from everyone in the room? Generous, sacrificial giving, deliberate giving. Like giving where we know where it's going, like deliberate, like we thought about this and this is a great place to invest for the short term in Stonegate. It's going to take all of us buying into that, all of us believing that. See, if we want to go in low debt and no debt, it's going to take a deliberate and sacrificial posture with our money right now. Mine, yours, all of ours. It's going to require that for, for all of us in the room if we want that. Okay, now, and I want to just finish on, on this part by saying this. That I am not asking you to do anything that I am not 100% fully committed to doing. 100%. Like, I'll just say it this way. I personally, my family will be fully vested in that. In those things. A deliberate thing. Church planting, multiplication of the, the gospel, adoption, orphan care, and everything it's going to take to get Stonegate moving in that direction. I am 100% in on that. I, I promise you this I will be at the tip of the spear of sacrifice. Not at the back of it, but at the tip of it. And can I just say, I don't earn any more if I'm at the tip of that spear? I don't earn any more if um, all of those things happen or if none of those things happen. I don't earn any, there's no monetary thing for me in any of that. It doesn't affect that in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't correlate. There's no correlation between those two. Do you know why I'm fully invested? Because there's going to be a day where I'm about to die and I'm going to be looking back over my life. And here's what I want to know and be able to say about my life and the money that God's entrusted to me. That I put that in specific places, deliberate, not random, specific places that would multiply the gospel. And I think that's a worthy, God-glorifying, gospel-displaying thing at the end of our days. And the reason I can stand up here and tell you that, because I've I'm, I'm already bought this thing. And it's a lot easier to, to sell what you've already bought, right? But, but it's, I think it's actually going to be a God-glorifying and gospel-displaying thing for you when you're about to die someday and you're looking back over your life. I think you'll be glad that you can say it. And so I, I just want you to know, I'm calling us all to sacrificial giving everyone in our church to sacrificially considering what does it look like for us to be fully invested into this. Okay, last one then, then we'll finish up here. Verse 5, their giving was an act of worship. Giving is an act of worship. Look at verse 5 says this, and this, not as we expected. All this generosity from the Macedonian church, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Worship is an all of life response to God that says, God, I am completely yours. Every piece and parcel of my life, it's all yours. Anything we want to talk about, God, it's yours. Job is yours, money is yours, family is yours, kids are yours, everything is yours. That's worship. It's an all-out, full surrender to God that says everything is yours. And do you know what, God ha- what happens when we worship like that? When everything is God's? When God is the priority, where he is the thing, the centerpiece of what we love and treasure and, and prize in our life? Then, then giving and generosity naturally flows to that. This is why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, when all of our life has been given to God, like we love God like that, when we're worshiping God like that, when he is our treasure, then then all of our money follows our treasure. What we spend on, what we prioritize, all follows what we prize in life. Do, Do you see that? That this is not ultimately, okay, listen to this. Ultimately, this is not a money issue. It's a worship issue. It's what do you love? That that's the issue, that, that's the centerpiece of this. And when you love and prize and prioritize Jesus, generosity naturally follows. That you naturally have a concern for the things that concerns Jesus. You naturally want to funnel your money to the things that that Jesus loves. You naturally want to funnel your things to the God uh, to God's plans and purposes in the world. Do you see that? The giving is really just a, a thing of worship. And what you worship, your money will always follow that thing. So number five, giving is an act of worship. And and we'll finish. I'm going to do two things to end today. Um, The first thing, first piece of the ending, is I'm going to give you homework. I I don't know that I've ever given homework from a Sunday morning sermon. And so I'm going to give you homework this week. And, And here's the homework. Today, as soon as I get home, I'm going to post on the city, in the Stonegate Church group, 31 questions um, that Randy Alcorn gives in the back of his book, The Treasure Principle. 31 questions as it relates to giving and, and specifically sacrificial giving. And, and here's the homework for this week. I'm going to plead and I'm going to ask you that to this week. I, I want you to run through and pray over all 31 of those questions. So that would mean that you probably need to take four or five a night this week. And, and dads in the room, get this in the context of your family. What a great teaching moment for your kids. For, for you to get these questions out, to read over them and to ask your family, okay, where are we in this? Do we believe this? Are we in on this? 31 questions that deal with generosity and giving. And this week, this is your homework. Make sure that happens this week. Four or five a night will get you there by, the, by next Sunday. And here's the, the last thing I want to do. I want to make sure that we connect the gospel and giving. I want to make sure you see how these two things connect as the, the kind of the final um, turn of the morning. Okay. So, um, if you think about this passage, first or second Corinthians eight, one through nine, if you think about it in terms of those nine verses and what bookends those verses, here's what you see gospel on the front of these verses gospel on the back of these verses. So look at verses one and two. Here's, here's the foundational logic that Paul is using here. Okay. If I'm going to state it in just a kind of a simple way, it would go like this, that grace brings joy to brings generosity. This is the foundational logic of this passage. You see it in in verses one and two. These people are under severe suffering, extreme poverty. And do you see in the middle of verse two what it says about them? But they're like overflowing in joy. How do you get extreme poverty and extreme joy mixed together? How do you get severe suffering and overflowing joy mixed together? You know the only way that's possible is the grace of God. That's the only way that's possible. You know that grace has visited you when you are overflowing in joy and you're getting the heck beat out of you. You know that the, the grace of God has visited you when you're in extreme poverty and yet your heart is fully satisfied in God. You know that the grace of God's visited you. See, here's what the grace of God does for us. It brings us a satisfied soul, a contented heart a heart that regardless of the circumstances is fully satisfied in in God. Grace brings joy and that always brings generosity. See, it's grace mentioned seven times in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 brings joy. And that joy brought an overwhelming response of generosity on the part of the Macedonian believers. Okay, now if you want to see what the form of that grace is, like when we say grace, what we're talking about, What is the grace of God? Give me a picture of that. Look at verse 9 in 2 Corinthians 8. Here is what grace looks like. Here's the form of grace. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Here's grace. That Jesus Christ owns everything. Everything and yet willingly gave up everything that he owned. Do you know that? He gave it all up. He strapped on human flesh, lived a perfect life in our place, died on the cross as a substitute for your sin, substitute for my sin, rose on the third day from the dead. This is grace. Jesus gave up everything. Why, why did he do that? So that you who are poor could have it all. That's why. Why, why did he give up everything? So, so that you could actually have everything, namely him. Th- that's why. This is what grace looks like. Jesus saying, I will be slaughtered so that you can be rich. It has nothing to do with money, it has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I, I, I will give up everything so that you can have me. And when you have me, guess what you have? What your soul actually craves and longs for. That, that, that's what you have. See, see, the problem in generosity has nothing to do with our fixed cost. It has everything to do with our eyes are not fixed on Jesus who satisfies our soul. That, that's the problem. We're still looking for, for people and possessions and place to satisfy us. When Jesus is saying, listen, I've made you rich if you're a Christian. You've got everything you need. The the, the adage is true, that Jesus plus nothing, not your house, not your cars, not your clothes, not Jesus plus nothing really equals everything. And that's grace, amen? Let's pray together. All right, so we're going to finish um, this morning by responding through song. And um, I'm going to give you a second as the band is coming up to to just allow you to sit under this and for the Spirit of God to imprint and impress upon your heart the things that were helpful and good for you today and uh, for the things that would not be beneficial for you or the things that were misspoken by me, for the Spirit of God to wipe those things free from you. And if you are not a believer in the room, like you're kicking the tires on this thing, you're still wondering, man, should I push the chips in with Jesus or not? Can can I just remind you of God's generosity toward you? That Jesus owning everything gave up everything so you could have everything. Can I remind you of that? That because of the work of Jesus for you, God stands ready and willing to save you today. To satisfy the deepest cravings of your heart today, He stands ready and willing to do that. So, if I could just encourage you, if if that's you in the room, to cry out to God, to to plead with God God, here is my life, save me. And and God will do that today. And if you're a believer in the room, can can I remind you of God's radical generosity toward you? That He has given up everything so you can have everything? And see, when we start to see that generosity of God toward us, do you know what it makes us? Generous people. And so, so I just want to finish by praying that, that, that we would see God's generosity toward us and that that would plant in us great generosity towards God's plans and purposes in the world. So, So God, I pray for our church family. God, I pray that for, for me, for, for my heart, for, for our hearts, God, that you would Give us a willingness to go to the point of sacrifice? God, will you do that for us? Will you help us in that? God, God, will you give us a satisfied soul that can be generous? God, will you meet us with grace, and will you, with your grace, bring great joy to us, and with your joy, bring great generosity? God, I pray that you would. It's in your great name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.